as we're going to continue our chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study through through this book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, uh, find your way there, and I want to give you just a little bit of of time to, to make your way there. Paul is on his second missionary journey at this time, and I want to show you a map of the ancient world. We've looked at this over the last three weeks, but uh, just to bring us up to date, map of the ancient world on the screen, right there. There it is. Okay. Now, you will see down in the bottom right, you'll see Jerusalem, and then uh, everybody see that kind of in the yellow there? Okay. And then you travel on up, and you go up the coast, and you see that town called Antioch. Everybody kind of see that? Those of you in the back, you might not. Now that is, you see Jerusalem and Israel's kind of colored in, and then you go outside of Israel, you go through Lebanon, you get up into Syria, and you get into uh, this town called Antioch. And Antioch was the large Gentile church there in, the, in that first century. So Paul launches his, his second missionary journey from Antioch, and uh, he wants to go in a certain direction. And uh, let's go to the next map. Now, you'll, you'll see, um, just to bring you up to date, you'll see up there on the top right, you'll see that town called Troas, and we've looked at it a couple of times, and Tro- Paul travels all the way up to this town, Troas, and this is in the area of what you and I would call modern-day Turkey. And so he gets on a boat, and he heads straight up there in the Aegean Sea, and he comes to this town called Philippi, and then you'll recall the story from the last couple of weeks, he's there at Philippi, uh, things don't go as well as he had hoped, he actually receives a Roman beating. He would be disfigured from this, open wounds, scabbing, you know, very difficult time. And uh, they get him out of town very quickly, and he goes down to Thessalonica. So he arrives in this town, Thessalonica, uh, literally uh, two days, two days after he receives this, this beating. So this time period that we're looking at is about 20 years after the resurrection, Paul is going to be writing from the town of Corinth. He leaves Thessalonica and he heads south. He goes to Berea, heads all the way down to Athens and winds up there in that town of Corinth. And so he will be in this town of Corinth and then writing back to the church that is in Thessalonica. Now the church, when Paul writes back, is only about six months old. So uh, Paul's traveling companions catch up with him in Corinth, let him know what's going on back up in that area called Macedonia. And so Paul begins to write a letter back to the church in Thessalonica. Now the interesting thing that we're going to find, and we've certainly seen over the last couple of weeks, is that Paul is only there in this town of Thessalonica for three weeks, three weeks. And uh, the church is established and they do well. As we look at this book, First Thessalonians, uh, many regard this book as the first book of the New Testament that was written. Um, the first two chapters, the first three chapters will be very personal from the Apostle Paul. The last two chapters will be very practical. And uh, as I said before, Paul, uh, Timothy and Silas, who are Paul's traveling partners, are, are left up there in Macedonia. They make their way down to Corinth and they give Paul the update and he begins to write back. Now, when Paul writes back to this church of Thessalonica, he is, at first, he is reminding them of the things that he taught them during the three weeks that he was there. I want you to take your pen in hand, and I want you to to follow. You want to write down that that, uh, Paul writes to remind them of what he taught. Now, very quickly, we're going to go through this, but I want you to notice in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, in uh, verse 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, 
He talks and he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then however your Bible says it, just as you know, go ahead and underline that, just as you know. Paul is writing them of something, you know, you already know this. I told you this when I was there. So I'm just reminding you of what you know. Then go down to chapter two, verse one. And he says, for you yourselves know, now underline that, and he's going to talk about what it is that he taught them way back when. And then in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, for, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, and I want you to underline that, however it says it in your Bible. I mean, you guys remember, this is what you know, and you know, I'm just reminding you of what you already know. Then if you go to verse 11 of chapter 2, verse 11, he says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging you. And I want you to underline you know, because he's just reminding them of, of what was taking place that six months ago when he was there. Then you go down to chapter 3 very quickly, and he says, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know, however it says it in your Bible, I want you to underline that, that we've been destined to this. Paul taught them about going through suffering. Um, Verse 4 of chapter 3 says, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, and then I want you to underline, as you know, as you know, we we already talked about these things. Then in chapter 4, Verse 2, he says, For you know, underline that, chapter 4, verse 2, what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And we'll find out in chapter 5, there are 22 specific commandments that Paul gave the church. Uh, We tend to think about commandments being Old Testament, but Paul would give 22 specific commandments to this church. He says, you know, you know, we talked about those things. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, you notice he says, He says, for you yourselves know, and you want to underline that, full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So that's just to to let you know that mostly what Paul is doing is he's reminding them of what they've already talked about, what what they've already experienced. So just, just does anybody else find that halfway interesting? Okay, three of us, good. So um, that's good. All right, verses one and two of chapter two. We were in chapter one last week. This week, chapter two, verses one and two. And he says, for you yourselves know, it's like, remember guys, brethren, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, and you can also underline that as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst, amid much opposition, amid much opposition. So he says, you know, our coming to you was, was not in, in vain. Uh, how, how do you, you know there, it wasn't in vain? Well, we're going to find out, and I want you to just write this down. Their lives were changed. Their lives were changed. Something happened. They're, they were completely different. They were living one way. Something happened. Now they're, they're very different. But there, uh, if we can go back to the map real quick, we've talked about it every single week. Paul references it here in verse 2. He says, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. Now you see Philippi at the top. Paul undergoes that Roman beating that would leave him, uh, you know, they, they know how much will kill you. They back it off just a notch. The idea is they, they beat you to the point where you have open flesh, your muscles are torn, and, and so Paul would be scabbing over and still bleeding possibly at this time. And so he's reminding them, this is how I showed up to you. This is what was going on. And I didn't put it on your, your uh, outline, but that last word where it says amid much opposition, whatever your Bible says, that last word in verse 2, the word there in the Greek is actually agonized, just this incredible pain. And so uh, Paul shows up, and uh, he receives this Roman beating. He's disfigured. 
And Paul is reminding them that, you know, hucksters don't typically show up beaten up that bad. If, you, if you're going to take advantage of somebody, you're not going to show up that way. Now, why, why is that important? We're going to find in this letter, and as you read it, there are rumors that are being spread about the Apostle Paul. And so Paul is going to remind them so that they don't believe those rumors. Here, here's who I really have been among you, and don't forget that. So, so he's going he's gonna to talk about that. So he puts this visual in front of them. I showed up. I was beaten. You know how I was mistreated. Uh, I showed up in, uh, scabbing over and open wounds and all that. But he says in verse 2, he says, But God gave us boldness after we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Again, that word agony in the uh, original language from where we get the word agony. So he's in pain. There's difficulty there. There's opposition. So um, the the reason that's important is Paul says, when when I showed up, I I was in pain. And when I showed up, all there was was opposition. And so I I really had nothing to gain in in doing this. But God, and you'd think after that kind of beating that I received back in Philippi, you would think I'd be a little bit more quiet. You'd, You'd think I'd change my approach a little bit. But, but the truth is, it was God who gave me the boldness to continue speaking like this, be, and, and it had to be God, because nobody in their right mind would continue on, especially after receiving that type of torture. Make sense so far? Verses 3 and 4. He says, so, for our ex- exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Now, you're, as you read this, you're going to get the sense that there's some rumors that have been started And uh, Paul is addressing those rumors, and he's heard some of the things that are being said, and he's heard that from Timothy, and he's heard that from from Silas, so he's writing writing back. Verse 4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, and I I really had to take a lot of stuff out because we just didn't have... uh, place on the outline, but he says, you know, our exhortation did not come for error, did not come from error. He's saying that the message that I gave you was absolutely true. And he says, or by way of impurity, the idea is he said, my, my motives were pure when I came to you. I really had nothing to gain. And not only that, but we're going to find in a couple of verses, Paul's going to say, my, my motives were pure. Not only that, when I was with you, I didn't even take an offering. I just, I just showed up and just told you what God told me to tell you. And so, you know, there's a bunch of rumors going around about motives and all that. And he, so he's going to address that. That's what he's doing. He says, not by way of deceit. You know, I was very straightforward in, in what I said. Then verse 5, he says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. And he says, God is witness. And remember, he was only there three weeks. So he says, we never came with flattering speech. As you know, um, one of the interesting things about the Apostle Paul, you get this when you read through his letters to the Corinthians, that that when Paul would go places, he he wasn't that great of a speaker. He's an incredible writer, but he's not that great of a speaker. And so they would say things like, like, you know, he's very bold in his writing, but when he shows up, he's kind of unimpressive. And so Paul, when he shows up, all he has is the gospel because he's not really that great of an orator. 
So he says, we didn't show up with flattering speech. We weren't telling you what you wanted to hear. You ever heard somebody flatter somebody? When you flatter somebody, you always want something. So he says, we didn't do that. We just told you the truth, and uh, God was just, you know, there's no pretext for greed in, in anything that we were doing. I, I love this. Um, if you've ever taken a course in church history, you, you won't go far before you, you have to read some of the early documents that, that uh, were written by the early church. One of the documents that was written was called the Didache, and it was written somewhere in that first century between 60 and 100 A.D. Sometimes it's called the Didache, and sometimes it's called the Teaching of the Apostles. No church uh, synod, no church council has ever said this is a false document. Every, every church council has always said this is a true document. It's not scripture, but, it, but it's, it's true. What it is is a document that was supposedly written by the apostles. If not the apostles, it was the church leaders. And they were dealing with specific situations that were arising in the church. One of the things that was taking place in the early church is people were showing up and they were prophets for hire. They would show up in these places and they'd say, I'm a prophet and I have a word from God and here's how you need to respond to me. Well, this became rampant in the early church. So the church leaders got together and they wrote this document called the Didache. And it's it's fascinating because um, it talks about these prophets who show up and uh, what they do and how you know if one is false. Want to find out? Okay. So it writes this. It's kind of in the old King James. Uh, I guess they wrote in the King James 2,000 years ago. So um, it, it sounds a little old English, but we can get through it. It says, talking about this, but not everyone who speaketh in the Spirit is a prophet. You need to know that. But he who hath the disposition of the Lord, by their dispositions they therefore shall be known with the false prophet and the prophet. And every prophet who ordereth in the spirit that a table shall be laid shall not eat of it himself. If he do otherwise, he is a false prophet. So, so here, here's what was going on. Prophets would show up and they would say, I sense the Lord telling me today that somebody needs to cook me a meal. Um, I sense the Lord today that somebody is, needs to give a $1,000 gift to my ministry as I travel. I'm sensing today somebody needs to do something for me. If they say it's for me, they're a false prophet. If they stand up and they say, hey, we need to do this for this person over here, then they are a true prophet. So far, so good. So I stand up before you every November and I say, hey, this year we're going to be taking care of children through the Angel Tree Project. We're going to buy presents for hundreds of kids whose parents are incarcerated. Last year, our church, we, we took care of 300-some children. A, a fat, you know, incredible thing for a church our size. I stand up and I say that for them, that's true. If I stand up and say, you know, you guys need to gather together, and I sense the Lord saying, so you need to buy all of my kids Christmas presents, that would be false. So, so just so you know, if it's for me, it's false. If it's for somebody else, it's true. Then it goes on and it says, and I won't read the whole thing, but one, one verse it says, but whosoever shall say in the spirit, give me money <laughs> or things of that kind, listen not to him. But if he tell you concerning others that are in need, in need you shall give unto them and let no one judge him. By the way, um, Google the word Didache and you can spell it any way you want. It'll come up and uh, it's, and it's, a, it's like five pages. You will, you will, you will put a, a huge jump 
on your Christian understanding, especially in the early church, what they were thinking, what they were facing, and how they handled certain situations. Fascinating read. Fascinating read. So you have homework this week. So, but, but people don't typically show up beaten up, taking advantage of people. And so Paul is, is reminding them. He says, I, I just told you the truth. I didn't, I didn't ask for anything. I just told you the truth. And, I, and you guys remember that. Verse 6, he goes on to say, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. You know, we could have asserted ourselves as, as apostles, and that wouldn't have been wrong, but we tried to please God, and, and uh, you know, that's what we did. And we just told you the truth. We just told you the truth. And uh, you guys remember that. Here's what you need to know. Every once in a while, somebody comes up to me and they say, I want to go into the ministry. Um, here, here's the first thing you need to know about the ministry. You ready? It ain't easy working for God. And here's why. Because when you work for God, God makes you say things that you just don't want to say. He makes you have to talk about things that you don't want to talk about. Um, I'm as needy as the next guy. I like it when people like me. Before coming to the ministry, I never knew I could make so many people mad. It's my true spiritual gift. And I try not to. I try not to. You know, fortunately, my kids still like me. But as I travel through the Bible, as I travel through the Bible, the one thing that stands out is every time that God uses somebody, God tells them, you better say what I'm telling you to say, even if they don't like it. And if you don't, I'm going to deal with you. For instance, there in Jeremiah, I've put it there in your outline. God says this. God says to Jeremiah, he says, now gird up your loins, you know, get dressed and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. So uh, you're going to feel awkward before them, or you're going to feel awkward before me. It's, you know, it's not going to be good. I didn't put it on your outline, but Ezekiel was told essentially the same thing. Ezekiel was told this. Ezekiel 3, you can look it up later, Ezekiel 3.18. God speaking says, so Ezekiel, um, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. And so Paul is saying, when I came there, I just told you the truth. And, and uh, some people didn't like it, but I, I'm, I'm okay before God because that's what I was doing. So far, so good? So he says, we didn't assert ourselves. We, we just told you the truth. And so we didn't do all these things. We didn't come with greed and and all of that. But here's what we did do. Here's what we did do. We pick it up in verse 7. But we, we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well and pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become so very dear to us. You know, we, we were like a nursing mom to you. For, for those of you who know what that means, you can't give that job to somebody else. You, it, it's only you can do that. And he says, that, that's how we were to you. And, and we just loved you and we were there to impart uh, our lives to you. Verse, um, verse 8, he says, he says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become 
very dear to us. And Paul is saying, you know, when we showed up, we didn't show up as professional religious people. We just showed up as, as people representing the Lord, loving the people. We, we didn't show up doing religious things. We imparted our very lives to you. And he's reminding the Thessalonians of that. Well, in verse 9, he goes on and he says, for, for you recall, remember guys, remember this? Think about this because you're hearing some things. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden on any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul shows up and he says, you, you guys got to remember how, you know, we, we, we worked, we had just taken this beating and we, we showed up and we didn't want to be a burden on anybody. So we didn't even take an offering is what he's saying. We didn't, we didn't do that. What's interesting about this verse is that, that Paul teaches us something here that uh, many times if we don't pull in some other verses, we can, we can forget. Um, Paul says, I was there for three weeks. And so for the church that he's there at for three weeks, three weeks, that's all he was there. He, he never takes an offering. And he says, and you just remember how we worked. We didn't want to be a burden on any of you. So we saw that. Now, the reason that Paul reminds them of that is because apparently somebody back in Macedonia, there in Thessalonica, other voices coming in were saying that Paul really just showed up to, to fleece you guys. That's really what he was in it for. So Paul says, I didn't take an offering. I, I wouldn't take anything from you. So to the church that he was at for three weeks, he says, we, we didn't do that. But Paul came to Thessalonica from Philippi. He comes down to Corinth later on and writes a letter back to Thessalonica. He will also write a letter to the church that he was at just before Thessalonica, which is the church Philippi. He was there two days before he gets the beating and comes to Thessalonica. Now, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, notice what he says. I put it there in your outline. He says, you yourselves also know Philippians, there in Philippi, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, everybody see Macedonia up there? Macedonia is the area of Thessalonica, Berea, and Philippi. After I left, uh, at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. That's that church in Philippi. Then notice that last line. He says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So when Paul comes down to Thessalonica, he was able to minister there, not even uh, taking an offering because he was being supported at Philippi. It also indicates that when there was a need, he also went out and did odd jobs or something like that. He was only there for three weeks. So far, so good? So, and it says, more than once, you guys sent an offering to me while I was down in Thessalonica. So that in the church that Paul was in for three weeks, he doesn't take an offering. Now, what's also interesting is Paul goes down to Berea and down to Athens and he comes to Corinth. Now, in Corinth, he will stay there for a year and a half, a year and a half. And uh, it will be from Corinth that he writes back to the Thessalonians. And it's interesting, at the church that he was at for three weeks, they, they never take an offering. But after, a, after that year and a half goes by, Paul leaves Corinth and will, just like he wrote back to Thessalonica, he will write back to Corinth. 
And it's interesting what Paul says to the church that he was at for a year and a half. Notice what he says there in the outline. He says, um, you got to get the mood here. Paul's a little ticked. Paul says, um, do you, you not know? Do you not know um, that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. Now, I want you to underline these words with your pen in the same way. Everybody see that? In the same way. Underline that. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul had taught them, when it says in the same way, Paul had taught them because he's just going, you know, you guys should know this, I I told you this, that in the same way that the ministry was funded in the Old Testament, he says, in the same way, that's how it's supposed to be in the New Testament. It's one of those things that carries over from the Old Testament into the New Testament. For instance, uh, thou shalt not kill. Old Testament, is that a New Testament thing too? Do not commit adultery. Um, It's a New Testament thing. This is just one of those things. Paul taught them that. So, Um, when he does that, he's indicating, and you see as you read that letter, that that church never really made it a priority of of doing that for the ministry or or for for Paul and for those who were part of the ministry. It was never really a a priority there in Corinth for the professing believer. One of the things that we find is that we always reveal our true priorities by our checkbook. Whatever's most important to us is always taken care of by our our checkbook. For instance, you have a professing believer and they have a certain amount of income. The most, the greatest priority will always get taken care of. For instance, so if somebody says, well, I have mortgage money and I have money that should be going to God. Whatever is the highest priority, and I don't have enough for both, so the one that is the highest priority is always the one that's taken care of. For some, it's... it's, uh, the mortgage, and for other people, it's God. Now, some might say, I don't really buy that. I, it's, I mean, God's my priority, but I don't, you know, it's, I don't really do that. Same amount of money. Somebody has their mortgage money, and they have a child. They can pay their mortgage, but something happens to their child, and the child's rushed to the hospital. And the doctor says, we can take care of your child, but you've got to pay the deductible before we can treat the child. What gets paid? The mortgage or the child? Because it's the greater priority, right? Okay. For this group, God was never the priority. They talked about gifts of the Spirit, all these different types of things, but the truth is, at the end of the day, it was revealed that God was not really their priority. Interesting, later, would, later Paul would write back to this church in what's called the second letter to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Paul would say this, and I find this fascinating. I put it on your outline. Paul's a little ticked at this church, and he says, I robbed other churches. Sound happy? I robbed other churches, writing to this church, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and in need, I I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. Now, where is Macedonia? I want you to look up at the top of the map. 
Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Paul comes down to Corinth. He's there a year and a half, and that church never jumps on board. The churches up in Macedonia realize that Paul the Apostle is in need, so they begin taking up offerings to send down to him. It's also interesting that as we read the story, we find that the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were the churches that were undergoing the greatest persecution. The church in Corinth doesn't really undergo that much persecution, and so they don't really support the ministry, so to speak. But the churches who are losing everything are the ones who are supporting Paul as he continues to serve down in the south. Interesting stuff. So the church that Paul was at for three weeks, they become the ones who go through the persecution. They're also the ones who serve, uh, they're the ones who fund the ministry. But the church that Paul was at for a year and a half, they, they never really got around to that. So Paul writes back some fairly scathing things. But then in verse 9, Paul says, and and, uh, he adds something else here. He says, but Paul says, I was like a father to you. Notice what he says. Verse 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor, underline that word labor, however your word says it, and hardship. How working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightlessly and blamelessly we behave. Now, my Bible says behaved. However your Bible says it, I want you to underline that. Towards you believers. Just as you know. Remember? He's reminding them. How we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father. Now, underline the word father. Would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, into his own kingdom and glory. Now, very very quickly, and I know there's a whole sermon in this, and I I don't really have time, but Paul says, I was like a father to you. And he lists a couple of things, and, and you dads need to hear this because Paul says, this is what a father is. This is what a father is. In verse nine, we saw, he says, for you recall, brethren, our labor. You might want to make a little note somewhere. Paul worked like a father. A dad goes to work. The second thing he says in verse 10, he says, you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved. In Paul's mind, a father is the one who is the example of, of behavior. He's the example. Uh, parents, have you ever been shocked to hear your words come out of your children's mouth? You know, it's scary to me. Yesterday I told the kids, I'm not, I'm not air conditioning the whole neighborhood. I'm like, where did that come from? Can't wait till one day I'm at their house. I'm not air conditioning the whole neighborhood. Just so you know, I'm living in Jupiter Farms and, and it, it's occurred to me, I am air conditioning the whole neighborhood. So, so it's, a, it's a battle I've given up on. So, but he's an example of behavior. And then in verse 11, He says, and you know, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father. The father in Paul's mindset is the one who's the example of speech, how you speak. It's encouraging. It's exhorting. And uh, some of us were good on the discipline, but we're very weak on the encouraging. And uh, so this is a picture of what it means to be a dad. There's a whole sermon in there. We're going to move on. Okay? Let's just say okay. 
verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Now, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received, underline that, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it, what, for what it really is, and he says, the word of God. Now, underline the last line, which says, which also performs its work in you who believe. You want to underline that. That's going to be important. So I put that verse, verse 13, there on your outline. Let me, let me read it again from the New King James. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed. And underline that word welcomed, because most of your Bibles don't have it uh, translated that way. You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul says, you know, when we arrived, we just started teaching. We started reasoning from the scriptures, and we saw that in Acts chapter 17 when we walked through that. They heard it. They received it. That they heard it first, and they received it. They accepted it. But the word there, welcomed, in the, in the original language, means that they took it inside of them. It was more than an academic thing. They took it inside of them. And that word that they took inside of them began to do something inside of them. The word that he, he uses there, he says it does its work in you. That word there in the original language, I put it actually there in the verse, is energio, from where we get the English word, sound it out, it's right there, energy. Um, more specifically, energize, energize. And so the word there, energia, means to be active or efficient. And here's what he's saying. He's saying the word of God, when you welcomed it, you took it inside of you, it energized you. And I want you to write that down. The word of God energizes believers. But Paul is very specific here. And I want you to notice that last line there. He says it works, but then he says in you who believe. In you who believe. There is something about hearing the word of God. And, and if, if you're a believer, you hear the word of God and it begins to have an effect in you because it energizes the believer. And he's very specific about that. And here's what this means. For the believer, hearing the word of God is energizing. For the non-believer, hearing the word of God does absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because it's never been received. It's never been taken in. It's never been accepted. So the non-believer, you know, is dragged to church, whatever, and they sit there and they, yeah, okay, checked it off. But it doesn't energize because they're not really believers. That's what it does in the life of the believer. Make sense? Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to move on because I'll start preaching there. But it does nothing for believers. Now, Paul had a very profound view of God's word and its ability to do something in, in the lives of people. Here's what he said there in your outline. He says in, in Hebrews, Paul says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When, when the word of God is preached, when the word of God is, is preached, 
it's what God uses to speak very specifically into the lives of the believer, which is why, which is why. There are times when I'm teaching, and um, you don't know this, but I'm up here going, I am dying up here. And, and uh, somebody comes to me after the service and says, you said that, and it was like, God said this to me. And, I, and I'm like, really? You, you got that out of that? Here's what it is. It's the Lord. It's the Lord taking preaching, using it, and speaking and energizing the life of the believer. Make sense? Now, also, um, it's God speaking, and Jesus would say it like this there in your outline. Jesus would say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, it, it does something inside. It does something inside. Believers hear his voice through his word, and, and it causes them to follow him. So somebody can sit and listen, and it doesn't have an effect. It's just the evidence that they're not a believer. It, it, it's not energizing. Well, because God's word had been accepted, welcomed inside, it began to energize these people. It energized them to do something very specific. And I want you to notice the very next verse, which is verse 14. He says, Remember, the the word of God which performs its work in you energizes you who believe. To do what? Verse 14. For you, brethren, became, underline, imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. That's Israel. You and I would say Israel. For you, and underline this, you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and when I underline Lord killed, the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but are hostile to all men. So the word of God here, specifically when he says it's energizing you, he then says, and here's what it's energizing you to do. It's energizing you in that situation in Thessalonica to endure the, and I want you to write this down, same sufferings. The same sufferings. It was because God's word was alive in you and energizing you that you could face that type of, of um, persecution. And, and he says, just like the people suffered in Judea, in Israel, where Paul was from, they were suffering and from the hands of their own countrymen, so now in Thessalonica, you're suffering from the hands of your own countrymen. But then he says in verse 15, he goes on and he says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Now, the interesting thing is uh, Jesus was killed and, and the prophets were killed. And Paul's just talked about the same suffering. The, the idea is that some of your people, because you're being energized because of the word of God, to stand strong in the face of some very intense persecution, and it's causing some to begin losing their lives. The church is only six months old at this point, which all of a sudden, what we're going to talk about in chapter 4 begins to make a lot of sense. Notice what it says there in your outline. In chapter 4, Paul will say, Now, we do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. What's he talking about? Church is six months old. People are dying. How are they dying? They are suffering the same sufferings 
that they were facing in Judea. They're facing the same sufferings that Jesus who was killed and the prophets who were killed. And the only way that they're getting through that is because God is taking his word and energizing them to face that. Make sense? So we'll talk about that in two weeks when we get there. So, so some had actually died, but they were being energized to stand up in, in the face of, of all of that because of what God's word was doing in their heart. Verses 15 and 16, he says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but are hostile to all men, um, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that we may be saved with the result that they always fill up in the measure of their sins but wrath, underline that, it's a great word, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Uh, Paul's nice way of saying they're going to get theirs. Now, a few things. From God's perspective, put it on your outline, hindering the gospel is hostility towards all men because all men need to hear this. But the result of hindering, Paul says, is wrath. Go ahead and write that down. That would be the wrath of God. And I want to talk a minute for the, about the wrath of God. What happier subject to talk about? <laughs> Some people are very uncomfortable with the concept of wrath. God's wrath is coming. There will be some people who will face God's wrath. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the most politically incorrect things that you can talk about in a church. So let me see if I can uh, help it make sense. How many of you are parents? Okay, okay. How many of you think you'll be parents sometime in the future? Couple, good, 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 good. All right. You and I are created in the image of God. That means that there's much that we can know about God by looking at ourselves. Because we, unlike the rest of creation, have been created in the image of God. Animals, when they breed, they do so by instinct. You know, your dog has puppies. Eight weeks later, she's ready to get them out. She doesn't care if they ever write home. She doesn't keep in touch. She's done, okay? Because for her, it's not a relationship. It's an instinct. But you and I, when we have children, you know, the idea is that, that we're doing this, and we're, 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 there's something inside of us that says, I want to invest in the life of this child. I, I know it's not going to be cheap. I, I know it's not going to, you know, we all know, right? It's sleep and all that stuff. And, and, but but I, there's something inside of me that just wants to take this child. But we don't want to have a litter and get rid of them, right? There, we want to we walk through. We want to pour wisdom in them. We want to see them grow. We're excited the first time that they ride their bike. We're excited when they learn how to swim. We're excited about all these things as we see them develop. We're excited as, as we get to speak into their lives and see them grow up and become everything that they can become. You want your kids to become everything that they can become, right? Now, why? You want that for one reason and one reason only. You, unlike the rest of creation, are created in the image of God. The only reason you want that is because God has created you in his image. Other than that, we'd be animals. But because we're created in his image, things are different. So then it comes to wrath. I've learned something in my life. I, I've learned that, that uh, things come and go, don't they? 
you know, you borrow my car, you wreck my car, I'm okay. You know, get another one. It's just a piece of metal. Really couldn't care. A few weeks ago, my five-year-old carved her name on the side of my car. It's written there. She wrote it backwards, but I grew up in the 70s, so I know about backwards masking. I know who did it, okay? So, so I know who did it. And it's carved. I don't mean like she, you know, it's carved, okay? You can see it. Avery, backwards. So somebody does that to me, it's fine. Somebody says something mean about me or to me, I get over that. I and mean, we all say things that we wish we wouldn't have said and, you know, you know whatever, whatever, whatever. So somebody embezzles my bank account. You need the $27.50, take it. You know, it's fine. Somebody touches my kid. It's wrath, right? I know that's true. I've seen some of you tiny mamas <laughs> when you turn into mama bear, right? Where does that come from? It comes from being created in the image of God. You put up with a lot of stuff. Somebody touches your kid, you don't get over it, and you don't back down. Where does it come from? Created in the image of God. Wrath is coming because just like you with your children, somebody hurt your kid, it's war, it's wrath. God says, somebody touches one of mine. All they're doing is storing up wrath. You and I get that from being created in his image. God loves you so much that those who hinder you from hearing him, those who hurt you, case in point, Luke 8, Matthew 18, we're all familiar with the verse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to it would be better for him that a great millstone be tied around his neck and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Heavy words from Mr. Forgiveness. Wouldn't you agree? You and I have the same thing. God's wrath will be poured out on those who have harmed his babies. You think you're a mama bear. You ain't seen nothing yet. I like knowing that he loves me that much. I like knowing that. He loves you that much too. He loves you. And if you're his, just know, if those who harmed and hindered you from hearing him, if they don't repent on that day, they don't meet a happy Jesus. They meet the Jesus of wrath. Make sense? And with that, we're going to close. Um, next week, this is Memorial Day, so we're, we'll uh, wrap up here. Next week, we'll cover a chapter and a half. The next week, we'll look at this crazy teaching you and I refer to as the Harpazzo or Rapture, and uh, we'll talk about that. But um, let's just close with the thought that God loves you so much. He loves you so much. And if you're His today, if you're his today, there's nothing he wouldn't do for you. And there does come a day when those who have hindered, they have hurt, 
They have fought against the gospel. They don't repent. They receive the wrath. Just like you and I have that mama bear inside of us. It's nothing compared to him because of his love for his kids. If you're here today and you're not one of his kids, you can become one. You simply receive, welcome his word. Jesus, come into my life. Step inside. Forgive me of my sins. I want the relationship with you. We either face him on that day as his children or we face that mama bear. Only two options. You have the opportunity today to receive. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word and just how you take your word and you speak into our lives and you accomplish your purpose. And it's spiritual and it's you and it's beyond our understanding. For those who are here today, Lord, who have never stepped into that relationship, never invited you in. Maybe we've looked at our life today and we've said what we see in this chapter is not what we see in our lives. We look to you and we say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins, anything that's been a barrier between you and I. I want to be your child, and I'm asking you to step in and take my life and begin to rework it according to your purpose. And the Bible says that if you invite him in, he steps in, he never leaves. Father, for the rest of us as who are here today, and and, um, I pray that you keep us till next week, but even more than that, as we examine these passages, may you use them as a mirror and reveal in our lives who we are and who you've called us to be. I thank you for each and every person who's here today, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people said, amen.